Welcome to this four-part roundtable discussion with the faculty of the Educational Initiative, Emerging Treatment Options for the Reversal of Oral Anticoagulant Therapy. This discussion was produced by ASHP Advantage and supported by an educational grant from CSL Bering. It was recorded in December 2012 during the 47th ASHP Mid-Year Clinical Meeting and Exhibition in Las Vegas. Part one of the podcast series focuses on issues related to warfarin reversal. Well, good afternoon, everyone. Uh, my name is Edith Nutescu. I am pleased to serve on the faculty and as chair of this educational initiative. Here today, joining me is Dr. William Dager. Welcome, Bill. Thanks. Nice to be here. And also here today is Dr. James Kalis. Welcome, Jamie. Thank you, Edith. Happy to be here. And with that, I would like to go ahead and start our discussion today focusing on emergent treatment options of the reversal of oral anticoagulant therapy. And Bill and Jamie, as we all know, for the last five decades or so, we've had warfarin as the sole oral anticoagulant available. And while we do have a true antidote to warfarin, and while we've learned many options on how to approach patients that come in with major bleeding complications, still uh, clinically approaching a patient that comes in with major bleeding or life-threatening bleeding on warfarin is still controversial. And so that's going to be one of our topics today. In addition, with the novel oral anticoagulants, such as dabigatran, rivaroxabam, and apixabam, in contrast to warfarin, we do not have true antidotes of these agents. There's some emerging information on how to best approach patients that come in with bleeding complications on these novel agents. However, this is yet another topic that's very, very controversial from a clinical management perspective. So that's going to be our second topic of focus today. So with that, I would like to get your input and insights on what key factors should pharmacists consider when deciding a specific vitamin K dose in patients who are being treated with warfarin. Well, maybe I'll take a first shot at that. This is a bill. But, you know, as Edith has pointed out, a lot of this is very subjective because we don't have good controlled clinical trials for the reversal. We have some information as far as whether using vitamin K is uh, beneficial in a more stable ambulatory care uh, setting where, uh, in general, unless the INRs are super high, there's really nothing that's driving us to just give vitamin K to lower an INR value. However, when we have other situations like bleeding or need for procedure, now we're in a situation where we want to exudite the dropping of the INR to a value that's uh, considered something that we're more comfortable with at the moment, given the clinical presentation of the patient. So I think one of the things a pharmacist should consider is really getting a grasp of what the goals are for therapy. Are they immediate or long-term? If surgery is being planned, but it's being planned in five days, we don't probably have to expedite or even maybe even use any vitamin K. However, if we need to do something faster, we're starting to consider what can we give the patient to expedite to get an INR number. And I think that's one of the first things we have to consider as we explore this data is we're, we're really focusing on a number 
But we really should, should also pay attention to the patient themselves and what is the patient telling us. What other clinical factors might be present that will uh, impact how we decide? And if I already use one example is they were anticoagulated for a reason. So when we start slowing down or reversing anticoagulation, do we have to bridge them because they're high risk for thrombosis? Or is their risk factor pretty low where we're going to be comfortable with a period of time in which they have or anticoagulation free? The other thing I think we need to, to look at is if they're bleeding. And if there's active bleeding present or the procedure they're going to do carries a high risk for a bleeding complication, then we have to wage that in as far as how aggressive we are with that reversal and how fast do we have to get there. So obviously vitamin K comes into play with that, uh, getting the INR down, but it takes time for it to work. And then we'll talk about it at a different point, maybe some of the other factors that we can do to expedite that. But when I look at the vitamin K dose, uh, one of the things that I consider is what is the home dose? What is uh, their heart function? Uh, if they have cancer present, uh, how old are they? Because uh, these all can factor in, actually, uh, there was an analysis done by Elaine Heilich published a number of years back showing that these factors played into how fast the INR dropped. And when we look at an INR and we say two to three, we have to remember that that value is based on stable clotting factors. But when someone's dropping, the factor two is going to lag behind. So uh, INRs that are dropping may represent a higher degree of anticoagulation than ones that are rising. So uh, I consider that just because the INR is down to two doesn't necessarily take you out of the zone where they're stopped being anticoagulated. But in that, I, I look at that, and then if I have uh, low risk for thrombosis I'm, and high risk for bleeding, I might give a higher vitamin K dose than someone who's at uh, considerably high risk for thrombosis where I'm going to have to re-anticoagulate them sooner or later. And my bleeding concern is lower where I'd give definitely a lower dose of vitamin K. And then I give IV when I need to get there about faster than PO. The difference really is about 12 to 24 hours between IV and PO. So if you have more than 24 hours to reach your target, there's really no need to give the intravenous form. And all in all, my, my doses range somewhere between a quarter of a milligram IV to 10 milligrams is my, pretty much my maximum dose with INR follow-up. So those are some of the, the key things, at least that I look at when I'm trying to decide on the vitamin K dose. And then when we administer it, we try to expedite it to get it to the patient as fast as possible so that uh, the therapy is uh, promptly instituted. I note the range of vitamin K doses that you're considering based on patient characteristics. And I'm curious as to how both of you have applied the 2012 CHESS guidelines and their recommendations for vitamin K dosing as there's a shift in dosing recommendations from the 2008 to the 2012 with much narrower dosing window than what we are accustomed to from previous guidelines and the data that you so nicely summarized. So the question then is to what extent you're applying those dose ranges, you know, to, to the strictest limits, Jamie, your institution, for instance. First, I agree with what Bill said, and I think Bill's coming from an institution where he's built a very sophisticated system for anticoagulation management in the inpatient setting. In our institution, I think rather than even selecting the right dose, we struggle with 
are clinicians choosing the right route and can we as pharmacists be in the right place to influence that decision? And one of the things that we're trying to do currently is try and use some of the, the new technology that we're implementing to try and force appropriate dosing through physician order entry systems and and things like that and, and incorporate these guidelines into those systems as we build and implement with our clinicians. And, you know, it's interesting because at University of Illinois at Chicago, we're closer to your scenario in that one of our biggest challenges is to assure that clinicians are selecting the right dose based on, you know, appropriate patient characteristics. And so we are not yet at the level where, you know, Davis is perhaps, you know, from that perspective. But what's helping us is computerized decision supports. Done. The guidelines are built into our electronic medical record through CDS alerts, and so that's helping with better provider uh, compliance in selecting appropriate routes and appropriate doses. But there's still much work to be done. And I want to echo that probably our biggest struggle is the sub-Q route and these 10-milligram doses for three days in a row, which leaves us sometimes with patients that are warfarin resistant for prolonged periods of time. So if there's one thing that you want to catch early in your system, it's that practice and to try to get it more in line with the guidelines. And I think we're going to see over the next few years more insights on how to then take it to that next level, doing some more micromanagement as more understanding of this, especially in the acute care setting, becomes available. Well, the next area I would like to get your opinions on is pertaining to the 2012 CHESS guidelines recommendation of uh, using a four-factor prothrombin complex concentrate for reversal of warfarin in the setting of life-threatening bleeding. So how do we follow such a recommendation in the United States when, in fact, we do not have a four-factor PCC product available? It is correct that there is only uh, three-factor prothrombin complex concentrates or PCC products available in the United States. And there is data with three-factor products, but it seems like these products are most effective when combined with some source of factor seven. So fresh frozen plasma has been studied along with a three-factor PCC. There's also been some data to suggest that um, you can quote-unquote build a four-factor PCC where you use a three-factor PCC and recombinant factor 7A and put those two together to essentially provide all the same components of a four-factor PCC. And finally, something that we're hearing more and more about is the use of an activated PCC as a potential option. And again, for, for treatment of warfarin reversal or for reversal of warfarin, there are some data out there to support the use of an activated prothrombin complex concentrate as well. From my institution standpoint, I know the discussions that we've had about what our approach should be has been centered around clinician preference and certain specialties seem to favor one approach versus another. Neurosurgeons, neurointensivists, and in my institution tend to favor the built three-factor plus a factor seven, which, you know, if you look at with the literature, it was in an intracranial hemorrhage patient population, whereas our surgeons tend to favor more FFP plus a PCC, maybe because they have a little more familiarity with FFP and use of FFP, but I think everyone's becoming more and more familiar with these concentrated blood factor products, and that may change over time. 
I think one of the problems is what kind of bleeding are we faced with that we're giving these more aggressive reversals? And there's some data that's actually kind of rolled out in the last few months talking about the fact that with intracranial hemorrhages, we're not sure how much we're actually impacting their care, no matter what strategy we seem to employ. I think that probably the more important thing that we put in our systems is the ability to get the therapy to the patient sooner than later. And then what are our goals for, for therapy? Are they going to go to surgery or not? And one of the factors that we face is that our surgeons want a certain INR number to get them to the OR. And so it doesn't become necessarily an issue of which agent you do and the risk or, or expansion of the hematoma as much as which agent is going to get me to the goal to get them to the operating room. And so one thing that would be good for you as a pharmacist is to work with your neurosurgeons and try to find where that goal can be for therapy so that you don't have hurdles with the choices you make in getting the patient to the OR because the data with the PCCs, whether it's a three-factor or four-factor PCC given without the factor seven, is that if your goal for an INR is low, for example, 1.3, it's going to be really hard to reach that. Mm -hmm. And factor seven might be the one adjunct with the studies that we've seen that's able to get you at least a lower INR. And I'm not talking about whether it's better at stopping the bleeding. I'm just talking about a number to proceed. Most of the data in these trials have suggested that getting to surgery might be one of the treatment adjuncts that really helps with true long-term outcomes. But as Jamie mentioned, you know, whether you use a four-factor, three-factor, whether you add factor seven or not, mm -hmm. I think there's just a lot more we have to learn with that. This concludes this part of the roundtable discussion. If you'd like to hear more about the reversal of oral anticoagulant therapy, please listen to the other three parts of this podcast series. In addition, a web-based continuing pharmacy education activity based on the Mid-Year Symposium will be available in mid-February 2013. To access this activity and other educational opportunities on this topic, visit the web portal at www.ashpadvantage.com forward slash reversal.